You know, this morning, we have, I was going to say we have a guest speaker, but we really don't have a guest speaker. We have a special speaker. Uh, he's not a guest in our church. He's a part of our church from the very get-go. Um, you know, Don has been a part, you know, just behind the scenes, um, you know, just, uh, just encouraging me along, giving me good counsel. And, uh, you know, so from the very get-go, he was there. When I got to know Don a number of years ago, um, he was Don Cousins, you know, formerly at Willow Creek and now at Discovery Church and all that. Today, Don Cousins is known as Kirk Cousins' dad. I mean, that's, you know, we go to the HIM conference and, you know, people are coming up. Can I take a picture with you because you're Kirk Cousins' dad, you know? And I want to say, hey, you know, I, I'm Kirk Cousins' Asian uncle. You want to take a picture with me? No, I don't, but you don't want a picture with Don. But I think the most... I think the, the best thing that I can say is, you know, Don really has been a friend of our church. But, you know, when you start a church and you go through all that, all the ups and downs, all the challenges, um, it gets tough at times. And um, I just so, so, so appreciate uh, Don's just been a really great friend over the years. And, uh, you know, there, are, there are, is very, very often where, you know, I turn to my wife and I say, I'm just so blessed that um, God has brought uh, Don in our lives, Don and his wife, Marianne, who's here as well, um, that uh, we're just so grateful. So the best way I can introduce Don is that he's a great friend of our church and a great friend of mine. Why don't you uh, join me in welcoming him up? Can I get that? Aloha. It is a real privilege to, um, to be here. I, um, I uh, consider Mark to be one of my best friends in all the world. And um, that, that, really, that really tells you one thing about me, and that is that I'm really desperate for friendship. So now that we're such close friends, <laughs> actually, I like his wife, Joanne, and I, he, he kind of comes with a package. So anyway, and he's got three great kids. So uh, I don't know all of you, obviously, on a personal level, but I love you, and uh, it's because I love this church, and uh, I'm almost to the point where I can pronounce Kaka Ako, Christian Fellowship. I typically just say KCF um, or KFC, and I think of chicken uh, whenever I uh, do that. But anyway, it is a privilege to, uh, to be here, and um, uh, I come over here, um, been coming over here really uh, since 1991 to be a part of, um, uh, initially I was invited by the Hawaiian Islands Ministries people, Dan and Pam Chone, to come over and speak at their conference, and uh, that through that, met Mark and Cal Chinan and some others, and just built a, a friendship with them, and I've come back, and my family's come back uh, almost every year since 1991, and um, I don't come back because I love the long airplane flight because I don't like the long airplane fight, but I come back because I love the people of Hawaii. And uh, of all the places I've been to speak, and I've been to a few places, uh, there's no better audience to speak to than the people of Hawaii. Uh, you're, you're hospitable, you're gracious, you listen. Even when I'm bad, you listen respectfully. And um, it's a privilege to be here. I love this church, love you, and love what God's doing. Have every confidence that God's moving in the life of your church. So anyway, I want to take you to a very small parable today that Jesus teaches at a very significant time in his ministry, and I give you this small parable because it makes a very big point. 
And I want to just walk you through the small parable this morning. And my hope and my prayer is that you're going to get the big point. And that the big point is going to be memorable enough for you that it is going to be something that you draw on for the rest of your life. Okay? So the small parable is found in the uh, chapter of uh, 7. Matthew is the book. There are four biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible. Matthew is the very first one. He is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he has one overarching message to them, and that message is Jesus is the Messiah. And he wants them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, Jesus gives a discourse. It is one of five teaching discourses of Jesus that Matthew records in his book. The first one is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. is most often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It took place along the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus had been ministering all over what would be today to consider the state of Israel. And he's been doing many, many things, not only preaching and teaching, but he has been healing people. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, and as a result, great crowds are gathering to Jesus. They're seeing all the evidence of the fact that he is, in fact, the Messiah. So one day he sits down, and chapter 5 opens up, and he says, And when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and then it um, opens up what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of uh, the book of Matthew. And this, these three chapters, this sermon, provides the finest description of what the, the kingdom of God looks like in all the Bible. If you want to know what a follower of Jesus looks like, then you read chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew, and you uh, ask yourself the question as a follower of Jesus, uh, is this me? Because this is the best description. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're considering becoming a follower of Jesus, and you're wondering, what will, I, what will I look like if I choose to become a follower of Jesus? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because that's the best description of what a follower of Jesus looks like. Well, Jesus ends this entire sermon with one s small parable at the end of the chapter, and here's what he says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine who does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus says that here, once upon a time, there were two builders. One builder chose to build his house upon the rock, another chose to build his house upon the sand. And when the rains came and the winds blew, um, and the, the streams rose, the one who built upon the rock, his house stood, while the one who built upon the sand, his house fell. And he says, in effect, that's what life is like. We all build our lives upon something. Jesus is asking the question, what is your life built upon? Okay? All right, now, the people uh, that were listening in the audience that day knew exactly geographically where Jesus was talking about, and so therefore they really understood the parable. Now, in our case, because uh, we're not in Israel and we're not as familiar with the geography, 
Uh, we can understand the concept, certainly, of rock and sand and, and all that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you there for just a second. So I'll throw up on the screen this picture. This is a group that I was with in June of 2015. And uh, there were about 60 of us. And we spent um, approximately six days walking in the desert, the desert of Israel. Israel is two-thirds desert. Two-thirds of the land of Israel is desert. The desert is not what you and I think of, I think, most often when we think of desert, because when I think of the desert, I think of the Sahara Desert, all right, from watching movies like Sahara, right? And you see rolling, billowing sand, right? That's not the desert in Israel. The desert in Israel is all rock. It's just mountains. And so what you have here on the left side and on the right side is basically the foothills of the mountain, and all of that is just solid rock. And we marched in the, in the desert, hiked in the desert, uh, typically 8 or 10 miles a day, uh, trying to follow in the footsteps of the nation of, or, uh, of the people of Israel of the Old Testament. Well, where we're walking right now is what's called a wadi, W-A-D-I. And what happens in the wadi is that the desert does not have a lot of rain during the year, but it does rain uh, during the rainy season, and it rains a few inches a year, and all of the water that uh, falls in the mountain areas and in the hillside areas, which of which is on the right and the left here, it washes down the silt and things off of the uh, mountains, off the rock, such that in the wadi area, you get, in effect, a sand. And so you can reach down and you can grab on top of the rock, you can grab, you know, pieces of, you know, what has just become silt and, and, and sand. And our guide, as we walked through this area, he said, now, if we were here during the rainy season, we would never walk in this spot. Because he said very quickly and very suddenly in the rainy season, all of a sudden, these wadis can be filled up with water. And he says, I have been there when there have been walls of water six feet high that come rushing through. And he said, if you're caught in a wadi when the rains come down and all of a sudden the floods come, he said, you're scampering to get up the hillside because if you're not, you're going to get washed away. You're done. And he said, people have literally been killed because they've been caught in the wadi in the rainy season. Okay. So he said, we're not there in the rainy season, so we're safe walking in the wadi. So anyway, I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of what that looked like, what that looks like in the rainy season. So I want to show you a video. It just lasts a little more than about a minute or so. But uh, this is a wadi. This is a very wide wadi. A lot of them are much, much, much narrower. Okay? But this gives you an idea. And just listen. See there how the water is now rushing into a very narrow wadi.
say that's good. So as Jesus is telling this parable, this is where he's talking about. And he's saying to the people, only a fool would build their house in a wadi. And all the people said, yes. Why in the world would you ever build your house in a wadi? Because when the water comes pouring down, the storms of life come. If your house, your life is built in the wadi, you're going down. Therefore, the only person builder who would build a house in the desert would build it up on the rock so that when the rains and the wind come, your house would stand. So what he's doing is he's, in effect, asking his, the people there a question that day, and he's saying, upon what foundation are you building your life? What foundation are you building your life upon? Is your life built upon a rock? He said, if you're building your life upon my words, then you're building upon the rock. But if you're building your life upon something else, then you're building your life in the wadi. And when the storms of life come, guess what? You're going down. You're going down. All right? So to make this as, as simple in, in, in terms of practical as possible for us to understand it in our uh, modern-day terms, I want to talk to you about the foundation of your life. And what I want to uh, do is I want to put it in the context of an operating system. You all know what an operating system is, right? I took my phone out of my pocket and I put it in my uh, briefcase there, but um, we all have one of those smartphones, right? How many operating systems can we choose from? All right, so how many Android people do we have? Boo. How, how, many, how many Apple people do we have? Yay. Okay. All right. And we've only got those two choices, right? That's it. Either you're an Android person or you're, a, or you're a wise person and you have Apple. All right? All right, and then when it comes to computers, all right, we have two systems, right? How many of you are Mac people? Boo. How many of you are Windows people? Oh, okay. A lot of wise. You've got a smart church here, okay? Even though you have some diversity. I'm not seeing much diversity, but you have some diversity, all right? We only have two systems, right? So when it comes to our computer, we got two systems. When it comes to our phone, we got two systems. In life, there are three systems, and only three. And every single one of us sitting here today, whether you realize it or not, your life is built on one of three systems, maybe two of three systems. But no one's life here is built on all three systems. And whether you have made a choice as to your system or whether you have just unintentionally embraced the system, every single one of us here today is building our life on, a, on an operating system. The Bible tells us that there are three of them, okay? So let me walk through and tell you what they are. The number one system, that which Jesus refers to here, I like to call the biblical operating system. The biblical operating system. This is the person whose life is constructed upon the Word of God. This is the person whose whose words are shaped by the Word of God, whose thoughts are shaped by the Word of God, whose decision-making is shaped by the Word of God, who looks at their money, how they earn money, spend money, invest money, save money, is shaped by what the Bible says. When a person goes to work, how they interact with employees and how they submit to the owner of the business and how they carry out their work to customers is shaped by the Word of God. It's just that you cut them, they bleed the Bible. Okay? That's what comes forth. The Bible has, has shaped the way they think. So when, when relationships, uh, how you treat other people, when conflict hits a relationship, what do you do to resolve the conflict? Do you take steps to, to resolve the conflict? 
The person with a biblical operating system goes through life, and here's the dominant question that they ask themselves on a regular basis. What does the Bible say about this? And whatever the answer to that question is, the person does that. A biblical operating system. Let me give you an example of a person in the Bible with a biblical operating system. Um, let's just, let me just look and walk you through a few verses in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is 176 verses. So good news, I'm not going to read them all, okay? But I'm going to read a few. And I want you to listen to the heart and the mind of the psalmist as he writes a few of these verses. Let me just start in verse 1. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. They have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Skip down to verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. I do not... Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And then fast forwarding all the way to verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but in every single verse I read, there is a reference to the word of God. It says decrees, precepts, your ways, your law, your word. In fact, you know that for all 176 verses, every one of the 176 has a reference to the Word of God. What the psalmist is saying is, your Word guides my life. The truth of your Word guides my life. I have a biblical operating system. Okay? Well, Jesus says the wise man is the person who has a biblical operating system. All right, now having said that, let me make a statement to you that I believe to be true, although it's going to sound very harsh. And the statement is this. Very few people have a biblical operating system. In fact, I would tell you that most people who are sitting in a church somewhere in the United States today, although they're listening to the Bible being taught, very few of them have a biblical operating system at the foundation of their life. Now, why is that? Why do I believe that to be true? Well, I believe it to be true because the other two operating systems are so powerful, so compelling, so strong that they simply suck us into them and they overpower our ability to embrace and live with a biblical operating system. All right, so let me tell you what the other, what the other two are, okay? I call the first one the me operating system. 
the me operating system. This is evidenced by the person going through life saying things like this, thinking things like this. I do what I think is best. I do what I feel like doing. I do what I believe to be right for me. I do what I want. I relate to people that I want to relate to. I treat them the way I want to treat them. When conflict hits, I resolve it or don't resolve it based on what I want to do. I handle my money as I think is best. I chart the course of my life. The me operating system is a person who simply says, I do what seems best to me. Proverbs 14, 12 The writer says this, there is a way that seems right to a man. The book of Judges numerous times in the Old Testament says that the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's the me operating system. Now, if you don't believe in such a thing as a me operating system, then you just need to have children. Or if you don't have children, then you need to just borrow someone's two-year-old for a day. And after spending an entire day with them and you put them to bed, just step, step back and ask yourself one question. Did that two-year-old think about anything during the course of the day other than themselves? And every parent here knows what's the answer to that question. Nope. Not one time did they turn to you and say, Dad, how are you doing today? Mom, would you like to take a nap? Because I could just play quietly over here, or I could take a little nap for a while, and you could get a rest. You know, Dad, you doing okay? Would you like to just watch, like, maybe a football game for a little while? Because I could just play with my blocks over here in the corner for a few moments. No, that two-year-old is concerned about one thing during the course of the day, and that's moi. Okay? Me. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I want to sleep. I want to play. I'm not happy with something. I'm going to cry, and I'm going to keep crying until you do something to meet my need. You see, friends, the reason why the me operating system is so powerful is because that's the one we're born with. And the reality is it's the operating system that you and I are going to have for the rest of our life unless we choose to leave it behind. In fact, I know 60, 70, 80-year-olds who have a me operating system. And even though they become more sophisticated than the two-year-old, what's their real goal in life? Self-indulgence. What's life's goal? I want to retire so I can do what, what? I want. They're 80-year-old people, 90-year-old people with me operating systems. In fact, friends, it's the system because we're born with it. Unless somewhere in the course of life we choose to depart from it, it's the operating system that we'll have for life. All right, there's one more operating system. That operating system is called the cultural operating system. The person with the cultural operating system asks questions like, well, what's the world telling me to think and believe and do? What's popular? What are the friends in my life telling me to do? Or to put it in social media terms, what's trending? What's trending? All right? And many of us know what's trending, right? One of the dominant messages or themes in our culture today in terms of what's trending is the message of tolerance. What tolerance says on the surface is, accept everyone. So that being the case, that sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, who would want to not be known as an accepting person? But there's a deeper message behind tolerance, and the deeper message behind the, the cultural message of tolerance is this. There's no absolute truth. There's no clear right and wrong. 
Therefore, what's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not be right for you. But that's okay. I won't judge you. You don't judge me. You do what is right for you. I'll do what's right for me. I'll just tolerate you. You tolerate me because I want to be a non-judgmental, accepting person. And this is the dominant message of our day today. And so, therefore, if you watch the news, um, you know, we'll, you'll, you'll see people. Anytime anybody stands up and says, no, there is such a thing as absolute truth, there's a right and there's a wrong. That's right and that's wrong. You'll always have people in response to say, you're so judgmental, so intolerant, because it's a dominant cultural message of today. And by the way, every generation has different things that are trending. See, if you go through the generations, let me give you the years here. Uh, if you were born between 27 and 46, and I won't ask for a hand raise, uh, you're a part of what would be known as the builder generation. Call the builders because this is kind of the World War II generation. Okay? Helped really build America. If you were born between 47 and 64, which is me, which is Mark, we're part of the baby boomer generation. Okay? In spite of what Mark's told you, he's a boomer. Okay? 65 to 80, you're part of Generation X. 81 to 2000, you're Generation Y or a millennial. And then if you've been born 2001 or since then, then you're Generation Z or what I'm told is called a boomlet. I think I'd rather be a part of another generation than be called a boomlet, but anyway, that's another story. Okay? Now, what's trending from generation to generation changes. For example, if you go get a hold of someone who's a part of the builder generation, like my parents, and you ask them the question, is there such a thing as right and wrong? Like, is there absolute truth? Most people in the builder generation look back at you and say, better believe there is. There are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. Now, on the other hand, if you go to a young person today, and I'm not picking on anybody, but you go on a young person today, part of the millennial generation, and you ask many of them, is there such a thing as absolute truth? They would tell you, no, there's not. Truth is relative based on the individual. So what's trending changes from generation to generation. And down the road, 10, 15 years from now, there'll be something else, friends, that's trending because culture is always changing. Okay? And so there are some people who abide by a cultural operating system. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 speaks of this, of this very thing. Let me read it for you, and you can see it on the screen. Paul writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, cultural operating system, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who are disobedient. What he's saying is, there's a source behind the cultural operating system that's the enemy. The Bible calls him Satan or the devil. He's behind the ways of this world. And he's the one who really sets the tone and the values for the cultural operating system. Okay, now, let me tell you this. Most people, most people going through life, people that you encounter at work, in your neighborhood, etc., maybe even some of you, go through life and you either have a me operating system or probably a combination of a cultural and a me operating system at the foundation of your life. Well, I'm going to assume this morning that all of you would like to depart from those and get a biblical operating system. All right, so as I try and wrap this up, let me just give you two ideas relative to how you build a biblical operating system if you want one. Okay? Jesus tells us 
in, it, in the parable in Matthew 7. So let's go back to it for just a second. Okay? He says this in verse 20, 20, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, we can stop right there. What's the very first thing you need to do if you want to build a biblical operating system? You need to hear the word. This book needs to get in your mind, in your heart, and in your life. It needs to revolutionize the way you think. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You need your mind renewed. You need your mind washed. The Word of God does this. The Word of God is the will of God. And therefore, if you want to know the will of God and you want to live the will of God, you have to get the will of God in your mind. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, and I, I may be, uh, uh, these verses are coming up. In fact, let's just put it up there. All Scripture is God-breathed. What that means is God is the author of all the content. He didn't do the actual writing. There's 40-some people, that, that approximately 40, that wrote, um, uh, acted as scribes. But, friends, all the content is God. That's all it means. All Scripture is God-breathed. And then it says it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So there are four things for which the Bible is profitable. Teaching, that answers the question, what is right? The Bible tells us what's right. Rebuking answers the question, what is wrong? The Bible tells us what's wrong. Correction, the Bible answers the question, how do I get right once I've gone wrong? And then finally, training in righteousness, how do I stay right once I find the right path? So God in his word tells us everything we need to know with regard to what's right, what's wrong, how to get right once we've gone wrong, and how to stay right. Isn't that a great list? That's what the Bible does for us. And then Romans 10, 17 says this. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So if you want to live a life of faith, what do you need to do? You need to hear the message. You need to get this book in your life. So how do you do that? Well, you need to read it personally. You need to meditate on it. You need to memorize it. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11, and I'll, I'll quote the King James, I believe it is, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Put the word in your heart. Uh, at the church that I pastor in, in Orlando, Florida, <clears throat> um, we have what's called message-based small groups. So we have a couple thousand people that are involved in small groups. Uh, about 60 to 70% of them are in these message-based small groups. What's a message-based small group? Well, a message-based small group is a small group that gets together to discuss the weekend message. So if I gave a message like this, for example, at the end of the message, I would write eight or ten questions. And those questions would all be based off of this teaching. Then there would be six, eight, ten people who would get together in someone's home, and they would get around, and they would discuss those questions. Now, the reason we have these message-based small groups is because I want my people in the church to develop a biblical operating system, and I know to do that, they not only need to hear the word, but they need to get the word in their life. What's one of the best ways to do that? Get together and discuss it. Get together and apply it. Okay? This keeps falling off my ear. I think an Asian had this on their ear last weekend. So, is your, are your ears different than mine? Max spoke, Max spoke last weekend. I knew that. Okay. All right. I'm just kidding. Anyway, at the end of every message, 
almost every message that I give at the church I pastor, and it's the last question always at the end of a message-based small group, is I always ask this question, so what is God saying to you? God speaks through his word. So if you've been sitting listening to his word being taught for the last half hour, what is God saying to you? You see, if you want a biblical operating system, you've got to hear the word. You've got to hear the word. Now, how much do we need to hear the word? We need to hear it a lot. Week after week after week, I, just, we, I or whoever's teaching at the church just teach through the Bible. Why? Because that's the best way to get the word in. Friends, you and I are being bombarded by the cultural operating system. Television, Hollywood, news, the internet, friends, work associates, hours and hours and hours of the week. By comparison, how much are we in this book? Fair to say, not much. So you and I have to be intentional about getting in this book if we're going to develop a biblical operating system. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, but then he doesn't stop there. And then secondly, puts them into practice. Now remember, this is not called a hearing system. This is called a what? An operating system, which means action. So it's not just hearing the word, it's doing the word. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 say this. I think it will come up on the screen here. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, that's the word of God, that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So there's a second question I ask my people at the end of every message and at the end of every message-based small group. First question, what's God saying to you? Second question, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You see, and I know at the end of the day as a, as a Bible teacher, all right, that as I look at people like you, the key, the key to you developing a biblical operating system and prospering in life, as, as what the verse said, is not that you sit here listening to me but that you go away saying, what was it in all that I heard that God is saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? And whatever the answer to those questions are, that's where the blessing of God pours into your life. What's at stake? Well, let's go on. Verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation upon the rock. So what Jesus says here is storms in life are going to come. Anybody going through some storms? Storms in life are going to come. I've had a lot of storms over the course of my life. The most significant one in recent years was cancer. I spent about five months battling cancer at the end of 2015. That's a major storm. Can I tell you something? The me operating system is not going to help you stand up when cancer hits. And neither is the cultural operating system. What do I have to have confidence in? That I have a God who is sovereignly in control of my life. My life is in the palm of his hand. He controls my days. My days are numbered according to what the Lord has for me. He is faithful to me. He loves me. He can sustain me. Friends, that will enable you to stand when the storm of cancer hits. Storms are coming. Storms are coming. Psalm 1, 1 to 3, and we'll get near closing with this. I love what it says, the first, very first, very first psalm. 
In fact, I could just read it on the screen probably, right? Blessed is the one who's not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's the cultural operating system. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The person, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Friends, the Bible makes it very clear to us that if we have a biblical operating system, that when the storms of life come, not only are we going to stand, but we're going to prosper in life. One of the reasons why I love this church, one of the reasons why I love Mark and Joanne, one of the reasons why I love the leadership team of this church is because I know that they want to get this book in your lives. Friends, you're a part of a great church. There's a lot of churches out there that aren't teaching this book clearly. They give self-help messages few ideas, how to be a better parent, how to be, you know, uh, you know, a better spouse, how to, you know, handle your money in a better way with, with just a few good ideas. Friends, that's not going to win the day for you. What's going to win the day? Get this book in your life. Let me close with this illustration. It's from a book written by Henry Blackaby, and uh, he writes this. The first funeral I ever conducted was for a beautiful three-year-old girl. I remember her birth. She was the first child born to a couple in our church. She was also the first grandchild in their extended family. Unfortunately, though, she was spoiled. While visiting the child's home one day, I observed that she loved to ignore her parents' instructions. When they told her to come, she would go. When they told her to sit down, she would stand up. Her parents found her behavior cute, and they would usually laugh heartily at her antics. One day, the gate in their front yard was inadvertently left open. The parents saw their little girl escaping out of the yard and proceeding toward the road. To their horror, a car was racing down the street. Their daughter was running out between two parked cars into the traffic. They both screamed at their little girl to stop and turn back. The girl paused for a second, looked back at her parents, then gleefully laughed as she turned and ran directly into the path of the oncoming car. The car struck her violently, critically injuring her. The horror-struck parents rushed their little girl to the hospital, but she died from her injuries. I was in the hospital room when the parents realized their only daughter had died. The outpouring of grief at the funeral was absolutely heart-wrenching. Henry writes, this was a profound lesson for me. I was a young pastor. As I witnessed firsthand the enormous grief that came because a child was not disciplined to heed her parents' voice, I realized that it was imperative that I teach God's people not only to recognize his voice, but also immediately to obey his voice when they heard it. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast for him, for this is your life. Friends, you and I have one life. There are three operating systems. There are no others. Which one are you building your one life upon? That's worth thinking about. So before we officially close, can I have you bow your heads for a second and close your eyes? And let me ask you the question that I would ask the people in my church at at the end of a message like this, and that is, what is God saying to you? 
and what are you going to do about it? Why don't you take a moment, and then I'll pray. Father, it's my prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit that my brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are here uh, checking out whether or not they want to bring you, Jesus, into their life. Father, I pray that for the rest of their life, they would never forget that there are three operating systems. There's a biblical one, there's a me one, and there's a cultural one. Which one am I living today? Father, I pray that you would imprint those three ideas upon their mind and their heart in such a way that they would make a choice every single day when they get up in the morning to say, Lord, today I want to have a biblical operating system. Let me think your thoughts. Let me respond to your word. For Father, I want to live into the blessing, the promise that comes if I do that. Thank you for your word to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you.